0: This is The Naturalist. In every episode, we're covering the products, ideas, and trends that are shaping the CPG industry.
1: Or that we just really like.
0: So that was fun yesterday. It was a great time yesterday for a New Hope Network volunteer day at the Conscious Alliance. And not only were you there, but your mom was there too. Yes, my mom was there.
1: She was unpacking boxes, showing some muscle, putting me to shame.
0: She did put you to shame. I'm going to agree with that statement.
1: But it was, yeah, it was really fun.
0: Conscious Alliance is great. They're a Colorado-based nonprofit that focuses on addressing food insecurity. As we introduced Chloe Sorvino of Forbes, who is our great guest today, I think a lot of what we do at New Hope is affecting change by highlighting the positive stories in our food system, the change makers, the successes, the things that are happening to address Climate change and food insecurity and disease, and all these things that are plaguing our society and our world. And we like to look at a lot of the positive things happening. There's another side of that story, which is exposing some of the unfortunate sides of our food system. And there are many of them. And, you know, I think Chloe's a really great example of a journalist that tackles those issues and really uncovers some of these big, big challenges to our food system.
1: Yeah, I agree. I I thought our conversation was fascinating. We talked with her at the Boulder Bookstore, which was really fun, in person about her book raw deal, hidden corruption, corporate greed, and the fight for the future of meat. And I thought, you know, our conversation was about supply chains and food systems. But like you said, it was really so much more than that. And the one thing that really hit home for me is that number one way to address our corrupt food system is to really redistribute those investment dollars and ultimately power by doing that. And I, I feel like Chloe is someone that really knows so deeply about the investment system and and what that means, especially when looking at CPG.
0: Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. Like the big standout takeaway for me was how we need to redistribute power in our food system and so much of that does come from the money, the dollars. And so when we think about helping to support emerging brands and even larger CPGs that are looking to do things a little bit different, we really have to help them think about where is their funding coming from and how is that ultimately going to influence how they do business and how they affect the you know how they affect change in the world. So definitely a really interesting conversation in addition to chloe's investigative work around everything from industrial feedlots to honeybee colonies she also works on the 30 under 30 food and drink list for forbes which is always really exciting because we see so many of those awesome entrepreneurs that come through new hope network and our trade shows also showing up on chloe's list so she also highlights some of the really inspiring work happening in the cpg industry can
1: i just on a side note before before i keep going The bee colonies.
0: That blew my mind. The carrot monopoly. I couldn't believe it. I was like, I mean, but it was a great example of like, we can't turn a blind eye to these really important issues. We have to look at every single piece of our food system and scrutinize it and ask those questions because even, yeah, even the honeybee colonies. Even the carrots. Even the carrots.
1: You know, I actually bought carrots yesterday and I kind of just stood there staring at them thinking about the carrot monopoly. We'll never be the
0: same again. But you bought them. I thought you were going to throw them them. and run away. (laughs) (laughs) Have you learned nothing? (laughs) I've learned nothing.
1: Okay. So without further ado, Chloe Sorvino.
0: We're here at the Boulder Bookstore in Boulder, Colorado. Live. Live and in person. Live and in person at my favorite bookstore ever is, well, and you're a native boulderite. A native boulderite. So I've been coming here for all of my years and it's a special place, Chloe. So you must be excited to be here for like the last leg of your book tour, right?
2: Hopefully not the last, last, but less like really big one for until I just take a little bit of a break for the holidays and all that. But no, it's <laughs> amazing energy in here. I'm so excited to be here. It's such a gorgeous store. All these little nooks and crannies. I'm excited to hopefully spend a little time.
0: And we're, we're in one of the nooks. We are. Or in. a cranny. <laughs> Probably know. both. So, okay, that first of all, that must be really fun, being out a book tour, being a foodie like yourself, traveling all over, talking about our food system, which we'll get into. But we were chatting a little bit about your favorite food cities. You said. Well, I do this weird thing because I love,
2: love, love Mexican food. So anywhere, anytime when I'm in a place like... Colorado or Arizona or L.A. or, you know, I don't know, pretty much anywhere in the West Coast, Western part of America, I'm like almost always having like the regional Mexican foods. I just love like the Denmex I'm obsessed with, honestly. Um, and, wait, where are you? Where are you based? I'm from New Jersey, which actually has an amazing amount of Mexican food, but it's also all totally different. And so I just like really love all the different regional specialties. I love how here there's obviously like smothered things. The green chilies have been so exciting and fun to eat. Um, But, you know, the book tour has been incredible. I've gone to such wonderful cities and just had really special conversations with people who really care, which is so important. I think we need the more the merrier. Everyone who can care, who can really put that energy behind fixing the broken parts of our food system are huge. But, you know, we've gone to Montreal, Charleston, South by Southwest, a bunch of things in Austin, obviously all over Brooklyn and New York. Martha's Vineyard was a fun one. I had a lot of some lobster rolls on the Rosio book tour, but
0: <laughs> love that. Yeah, having all those regional foods. Or has, has there been a moment or a one particular conversation that stood out to you as sort of like a defining moment of the book tour?
2: Well, I did open up for Tony Hawk at a big summit in Montreal, which was pretty cool, but also mostly because my husband's a really big skateboarder, like he skateboards every day. So for me, that was fun because he actually was really excited about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I mean, in Charleston it was also really special because I had a lot of really, really amazing farmers and growers and pig producers who actually came and were sub- supplying the food at this event. We did like some incredible food Build, up. Build- uh, Gonzalez um, was the chef for the event. And she was having this amazing pork um, wrapped as a meatball through a rosemary skewer with like orange and it was all inspired by the book which was super super fun Um, because you know at the end of the day obviously it's you know it's an intense book there it's investigative it's about climate but I really try to bring it to life at these events and make it realistic make it fun make it optimistic hopeful a little bit at least so.
0: Well, I think that's really refreshing, and I do want to talk about that of bringing the optimism piece to these kind of exposes that you do about our food system. But first, that sounds delicious. What you were just saying, <laughs> like, if, you were, <laughs> if you were like, I want that. It's dish too close right to now. dinner time, right? Yeah, now. you can't do that to us. Adrian and I are both like, you asked. I want?
2: That. I know. Maybe like the fifth iteration of my book tour will just be like restaurant pop-ups about you know ethical meat and alternatives that are actually good. I love that. You could make a companion guide. Yes I I really I would love that I mean I also just now that I'm not waking up at five in the morning to write and to edit and to fact check and do this entire thing for two years I'm actually just personally getting back into like really nourishing myself and having a lot of fun in the kitchen again which is exciting. So how did the whole how did the book begin and what was the inspiration? Yes I mean I've been at Forbes for nearly a decade which is kind of crazy I mean journals move around a lot often but Forbes is really a place where there's like that long-term future which I've always loved and I've been heading up food and agriculture coverage there for like five years now. So I've seen a lot and it's been such a fascinating time, I think, in the food and the natural food space because, you know, 20 years ago, there was a little bit of investment. You know, some investors would, would give money here or there. You know, the white wave deal that was down here in Boulder, obviously a huge acquisition that really um, proved to a lot of people that this sector needs more investment, can have huge opportunities for growth. Um and so I've now been covering this as there's been that boom all of a sudden of funding flowing in to these startups and, you know, also these big food companies getting super excited about acquiring and mergers and um, the entire thing. Um, and so obviously now there's been this like funding frenzy. Right. And uh, there's investors who have you know, never really understood food before or farming and are not looking at it from that like investment Pure investment opportunity. And we can talk about that maybe a little bit more. But that's like the background I come from for this. You know, I've been writing about food, you know, the biggest billionaires behind, you know, just like the craziest weird like monopolies, like little niche industries that, you know, create these big family fortunes for a while. I've obviously been doing the 30 under 30 food and drink list for a bunch of years now. And so in 2020, I was just so heads down, you know, those first three months of everything, I was just constantly on my phone, calling as many people, talking to talk to as many, many folks as possible, workers, CEOs, unions, average consumers, truckers, I mean, just the entire kind of gamut of the supply chain, logistics people, all the financiers. And when I was able to kind of take a moment to pull back and say like, holy shit, what is happening? And what have I just reported on for the past three months? It was such a catalyzing moment that you know i shot off a two-page letter to some book publishers on a whim and simon and schuster luckily was interested and so you know it's kind of rare to sell a book off like a two-page letter instead of like a 40-page book proposal but um it's been an incredible opportunity and really just fulfilling personally because you know i i write different stories, you know, every week. I have my newsletter, Warps Fresh Take, which is about food and sustainability. But, you know, the book really gave me the opportunity to really blend everything I've learned in this decade and really share with folks the comprehensive view on this entire food ecosystem.
0: Well, so amazing. Congratulations. And it's just really cool to hear you talk about that reporting process and how you had this, like, light bulb moment. So I'm curious Did you have a hypothesis going into those conversations? And was that different from some of your early conclusions? So I think that sounded very scientific. (laughs) I was
2: (laughs) really (laughs) impressed with (laughs) your question. Super scientific. Um, No, you know, I think this main thesis has always been the same. I mean, the, the main perspective of why I wanted to write this book, right, is fundamentally meat consumption is still going up. It needs to go down. But there are so many folks who are trying to figure this out. But at the same time, especially at that time, things were so volatile, especially on social media. You have to be a vegan or you have to only eat regenerative meat. Um, It was so didactic that I just felt like, well, there's such a reason for that. And I can understand the fear and the anger behind all of those really passionate moments and fights that I was like seeing playing out. Um, You know, I also felt like I, I work at Forbes, right? I mean, there's a financial system underpinning all of this. And that's really, you know, the the profit and the financial returns, that need is kind of really what's um, holding back the status quo from changing. But at the same time, I feel like none of those conversations were really actually addressing the root of it, which was like the numbers, the financials and the profits. Um, And so I wanted to bring that to the conversation. So were there any big surprises then? So I just reinforcing what you... It all really accelerated. A lot, right? I mean, I didn't really want to have a chapter on cultivated, lab-grown meat in it, but you know, it came to a point where I thought, you know, this is happening so quickly, it's accelerating so much that I have to address it, right? And you know, I, 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 I wrote all about how there are energy concerns, um, there are patent concerns. There's kind of a a land grab concern, if you will. Um, and I think all of that has, as it, a good example, has already been playing out really way quicker than I had even predicted. Because I mean, again, the book, it also predicts this kind of fallout in the financial system, which has been happening already. I mean, I predicted it thinking it would happen maybe you know five years, not a year or two. But um, you know we're already seeing that with a bunch of these alternative protein serves that raise so much money at these crazy valuations. You know, now um, coming back to table, having to take down rounds, having to merge, having to pretty much close up shop, um, sell off their stuff for for prop propriety. Um, And so that shakeout and, you know, me understanding how the financial system really works, right? And it's like the billionaires, the financiers at the end of the day who really have the ownership and who can make the changes. Um, I really wanted to take that eagle eye view and go back to it because I just everything was so short-term focused. It was concerning. Is that what it was? Do you think it was just the huge amount of excitement,
1: you know, plant-based growing, 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 and then investment going with it, and then all of a sudden
2: it just wasn't sustainable? So one of my chapters in the book, so it's it's broken up into really addressing also the, the real root, the fundamental root of the problem, right? It's not just about alternative protein. That's a small section. It's about the meat industry, the um, consolidation that got us here, and, um, and everything that goes along with that, including the, you know, environmental desecration. Um, but, you know, in the alternative protein section, um, I really did look at it, and, and I quoted that the title of one of the chapters is um, referencing Lisa Faria's great quote about dumb money, right? And there are some investors who really made Especially in Boulder, right? There are so many examples, I think, of investors in Boulder who are coming at it from the right reasons. And obviously, you need to be able to be financially sustainable too, to keep this all sustainable. Um, But at the same time, there was also a lot of these investors coming in, right, with funds from, you know, uh, different, you know, maybe Bay Area or other funds from around the country where you know, maybe they had invested in a SaaS company or AI early or cloud and had some pretty big exits. And then all of a sudden, they had a lot of money that they were sitting on. Right. And so I think that's where the dumb money comes in, because then there are people who really weren't specialists who just saw like the future of food or farming, having never had much at all investment going into it. And then all of a sudden said, oh, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was like slapped on the back or had seen an invest like mouthwatering pretty much. And you know, it's like the early days of the internet, you know? <laughs> and um, while that's well and true, I mean, I think that's also why you then saw more of a bubble happening and more of these kind of big, big, big valuations that now, unfortunately, some of the startups just really, truly can't live up to. And so I I wanted, I wanted to bring kind of a realistic perspective to the companies. And at the end of the day... You know, what I've learned at Forbes is that you have to be a financially sustainable company. You have to actually have sales. You have to actually have profits. You can't just have a company based off of investment capital and burning cash and then hoping to raise another round. Oh, I just wanted to know what the quote was because I actually am not familiar with the quote. So she calls it the dumb money. She calls it. That's the quote. Yeah. So the the chapter title was The Dumb Money Driving the Plant-Based Boom. Um, But she talks about dumb money a fair amount. I think obviously she's an example of someone who's not dumb money, right? She's invested across everything. She's invested in almost every alternative protein company out there from lab grown to plant based to mycelium companies, everything in between. And she's pretty much seen also every other company that she hasn't chosen to invest in. But she's seen the financials and the decks and the pitches for every single one.
0: So what is like smart money right now in our food system? Where are investors putting their dollars that you view as truly sustainable, both for the planet and for financial outcomes? Yeah, I mean, you know, today we're having this
2: event with Meaty, right? And one of the only reasons I felt comfortable, you know, doing an event, um, you know, with a company that's obviously, or I'm in their community here, right? I don't, I'm not, I I live in New York City, I'm not from Boulder. You know, I was excited, particularly about Mycelium, because of how, can be less processed. Um, how you know it is kind of foundationally needing less additives overall. Potentially better health. Also, you know vegans um, we need a lot of B twelve and it's very hard for them to get it anywhere else. But mushrooms have so much of it, and I think that is also a really like um, kind of interesting potential for those. Um, but I mean, it's still a really rough road because at the end of the day. A, those companies are still up against the big meat packers, right? Um, alternatives, even grass-fed, um, like more pasture more sustainable kinds of farming with actual livestock. I mean, all of that is less than 1% of total meat sales, right? And so I, I wanted to really talk about this because at the end of the day, you have to take a bite out of the factory farms or else it's all this is just in conversation and going to kind of blow up in smoke.
0: Yeah. Less than 1%. That's pretty chilling. Yeah. Yeah. We have a long way to go. Right. And and I want to see it actually be
2: able to take a substantial share. Right. Yeah. And kind of going back to to the the white wave deal, right, in Boulder, um, everyone always talks about alternative proteins that, you know, um, alternative milks actually have commanded some like 15% of the total milk share. And so I think that shows that, you know, it could happen, but meat and the alternatives are just so much farther behind and we're we're losing time we need to throw everything we've got at this problem now
0: so you mentioned earlier that you wanted to bring optimism and hope it does i mean it's hard with this right <laughs> when you see what we're up against but what through all of your reporting and I'm always interested in those conversations I have them I know Adrian has them a lot at Expo or when we're reporting for New Hope but these like kernels of like, oh my gosh, yes, that is going to make a difference. So I'm curious what either moments in your reporting process or pages of the book you think best represent that Mm -hmm. light at Mm -hmm. the end of the tunnel. Yeah. So it has to get dark
2: before it gets better. Right. But I also tried to put myself in the conversation a little bit, especially towards the end of the book to bring that levity. I mean, like I grew mushrooms in my apartment I'm um, wearing mushrooms. I'm wearing You're a so mushroom jumpsuit <laughs> right now. A jumpsuit, yeah, <laughs> boy. Um, but no, I also worked at chicken slaughter at a friend's farm, and you know, a farm that you know, while that was extremely gruesome, um, and an ex- extremely eye-opening experience. You know, it uh, was a farm that supplies almost everything they grow to soup kitchens in Philadelphia. They're doing mushrooms on logs in the forest. They've got vegetables. They've got turkeys. They've got chickens. They've got um, cows grazing cattle grazing. Um, And I was doing the chicken slaughter on the farm for 100 chickens over two days. So that was crazy. But, you know, really kind of the foundation of um, what I've learned and what I think is the best way to go um, is my conclusion. I really try to kind of wrap it all together and talk about alternative finance, because I think at the end of the day, that is the best counterbalance that there exists in this kind of capitalistic world where we all live in at this point. No, say what you want about capitalism, but it's here. It's going to say, and I don't think we're going, if we can't upend the meat industry, I don't think you're going to be able to upend a capitalistic society within any meaningful amount of time as climate change is getting worse and worse. So I I talk a little bit about, you know, B Corps, Benefit Corps, the differences, right, of the two, because they are different and both mean something, both have teeth, but different kinds. Um, I talk about alternative loans. Um, loan reform, um, and and also talking about you know different ways to raise because obviously again you need capital right. Meaty needs a hundred million dollars to make their next you know gig of farm, right. Um, a meat packer would need like four hundred million dollars to make a chicken plant and from scratch today. So that's a lot of capital, um, and small scale farmers startups don't exactly have that. Um, so I write uh you know about different ways to raise. Um, Particularly, there's ways to structure deals instead of just capital um, with an investor that maybe you have liquidation preferences or maybe the founder might get screwed at the end of the day. Um, You know, there are ways to align um, the growth outlook with revenue or
0: um, different markers instead of just having to have kind of all out growth. So it really all comes back to the funding model. The, what it, Where is this capital coming from and what is the intention behind it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I really think at the end of the day, it's all about having a kind of a patchwork of solutions. I don't think you're going to be able to really get at the heart of this problem just with small scale farming like you see at a White Oak Pastures um, or even at like a Cook's Venture, which does have some venture funding, which I've written about. Um, and similarly with the alternative meats. Um, but... As much as you can spread out equity and also kind of preserve power, because at the end of this book is all just about power structures, right? Um, I think that's the best way to kind of go forward. Knowing your power, too, like as a founder, I think that's one of the kind of big takeaways for me because I, I I had seen, again, years of especially times sometimes young founders or founders with student loans or diverse founders who maybe had never had a parent in finance, you know, who would all of a sudden say you know give away so much of their companies i've saw i've seen this for years on the under 30 list when they give us their equity spreads and and what they're doing you know um and as soon as you give away that equity especially if you give it away in that first or second round you're 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 losing your leverage and uh yeah i think at the end of the day I, i think the founder myth is something we also we could talk about like i'm not i'm not a huge proponent of that or the great great man theory but also, I think there's a real a real need for for maintaining that as much as possible. So you at least come into those negotiations eventually, like from a way better position of strength. Are there any other tips or pieces of advice you would give to a founder in this
1: space that's looking to get investment, other things they should keep in mind?
2: Yeah, I mean, I mentioned liquidation preferences too. I mean, again, when you lose your power, that's often one of the ways that an investor will kind of take it even more. Um, And sometimes you don't have the options of who you're getting into business with. Um, But I think it's so important to just know as much as possible before you're actually doing that. And so I think the smartest founders I talk to are always the ones who are calling up every single other founder who they've ever invested in and, you know, hearing if they're good or bad. Founders will tell you straight, especially if their company just got screwed over.
0: What are some of the other trends or issues that are really on your radar right now? Yes. And so, uh, you know, I spent years
2: very deep in this meat world. Um, And so I've been very um, excited to kind of re-expand my horizons again. I did a super, something I'm still super fascinated by that I wrote um, a few months ago was all about the bee industry and um, pollination as an entire sector and so really you know the consolidation i write about in raw deal with the meat industry and the seed industry and the um, herbicides and all these different inputs it's also the same in in terms of bees which i actually really didn't understand and there's pretty much two or three companies that control all the bees we hear about colony collapse all the time right but actually bees always have had to be corporately managed essentially or managed you know there's obviously a lot of different beekeepers out there but like small-scale farmers right um all, all of those independent beekeepers combined still make up like one percent or like i had tiny no tiny amount this was. and so the resnicks are a, a billionaire couple that i've written about through my 10 years at forbes um they were my first magazine store i wrote about their water bank and how they got their water bank um this kind of crazy sweetheart deal in southern california but they also now because they have the biggest pistachio and almond um, production in the country, they need bees for pollination. All these all these fruits and vegetables we eat, like a third of all the food we eat needs pollination or else the fruit isn't big enough. Um, it, there's less of it on the plant. Um, and so, you know, these billionaires are a crazy example of how, you know, in a few years with a few acquisitions, they've been able to, you know, create pretty much the, the world's largest beehives, the bee monopoly, a bee It's like the bee industrial complex, really. Um, and you know, I, I, the story is, was so fascinating to me because I actually actually didn't even really realize that the reason too there's so much colony collapse in America is because of colonizing the British colonizers actually brought the first beehives to America in like the 1600s. The Virginia colony actually originally Jamestown originally had it. We see them in the logs. And they, those colonizer bees have actually taken over the native pollinators that were thriving in America.
1: Well, my parents kept bees like the first 15 years of my life. And you're blowing my mind. I
2: thought I knew about bees. It's kind of crazy, right? No, it really blew my mind, too. You know, it's like two or three companies that control all of the bees. You know, the Resnicks will use them almost all for their, you know, um, their pollination. Um, mostly in February, in the winter. Um, so they truck them in from that industrial truck them in, complex? And then they move these bees pretty much around the country. They'll rent them out to other folks. They'll you know, go to the south, um, hit berries and melons, go up to Maine for blueberries. And sometimes... So they're migrant worker bees. Yes. But so the craziest part, too, is that then you know these companies are then playing for the cold storage trucking to truck these bees everywhere.
0: <laughs> it's like wow, the logistics are crazy to me. Is there uh, any like sector of our food system that is not controlled by big money and power? I have yet to find I it. I wish yet.
1: everybody could have <laughs> seen your face. The answer is no, question. ladies and gentlemen.
2: <laughs> Pretty obvious, no. Okay, the other one I'll talk about. This is actually all about the carrot industry. There is a fascinating duopoly: the humble carrot, the carrot expose. Two firms control as much as ninety percent of all of the yes. fresh carrots in our country. I mean, in meat packing, you know, it's like it's it's the top four have like some eighty five percent, which is crazy. But I've it's it's rare that I've seen two controlling that much, and they're both wow. you know based in Southern California. And now they're um it's fascinating because both of those firms, Bolt House and grimwife Farms, they have gone through this you know life cycle where they were either family owned or um Bullhouse was owned by campbells and then 2019 and 2020 private equity came in and now owns both of them and so now they're like three or four years into that cycle could the care industry have a merger or like change of hands soon and what does it really mean that two firms um two buyout firms are now kind of controlling almost the entire nation's care Car- well, supply yeah yeah i feel like that should be regulated is it not regulated? I'm so naive. No, I mean, I'm so I'm I'm waiting for the USDA and DOJ to get back to me. We'll see in the article. This is a preview. But um, it's crazy, though, because the reason I I got so interested in it, I read a lot about water, too, and, uh, you know, climate and different types of resources that have to go into food production. And so, you know, there's this duopoly. They have allegedly the same UPC codes at grocery stores, which is fascinating. And then Um, These two firms had filed a lawsuit together against um, essentially kind of California's uh, Sustainable Water Implementation Act because they wanted to preserve their water. And now they're having this big boycott and residents and other small farmers and other businesses there are fighting and having to pay a lot via legal fees to counterbalance this duopoly, which is suing to control more of the water. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> My mind is blown. It's a crazy world. But yes, no, I mean levity. Wait, you were asking about levity.
0: I <laughs> <laughs> hope. you're talking about hope. Really <laughs> oh, loosely asking about levity. Well, you gave us one so much better than that.
2: Really. I, I try to I do try to bring a lot of levity. I know. I mean the bees, that was that
0: was levity for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's Chloe Servita's levity right there. Not exactly opal, but it was levity. <laughs> well, what's the best thing you've cooked since wrapping up your book?
2: Okay, so about two years ago, I finally got off the Rancho Gordo Bean Club wait list, which is you are not on the wait list yet. Get off, get on that wait list and maybe you'll get off a little earlier than I did. Um, but I've just been making a lot. I've been trying to do like a bean or two a week um, or every other week really. And, and, you know, I'll I'll try to, you know, do it as beans one day and then make it as a chili or change it to the stew or like, you know, use it as a nacho or do like a stuffed pepper with it. So I, I'm trying to kind of, it's like kind of like a, almost like a, like a medieval challenge. big pot of whatever, and I'll just, like, kind of try to change it a little bit and make it interesting or, like, a taco or, you know, what have you. Um, but
0: it all starts with a big
2: Yeah, the I do a lot of the big pots and then like change it up from there. I was just telling Jessica that I made a big pot of beans for dinner tonight,
1: but because we're at altitude and I always forget that, it took eight hours. Oh, <laughs> that's <laughs> crazy. I mean, they were big, those big, big beans, those big white beans. But I. Yeah. But eight hours, yes. I was getting up at two o'clock in the morning
2: <laughs> checking on three o'clock in the
1: morning. Just a quick and easy. Dinner. Just a quick and just throw that on the stove. It'll be done tomorrow.
2: <laughs> it's so crazy that altitude does that actually. Yeah. That's wild.
1: I think there's some tricks to get around it. Have you heard the baking, baking soda? soda? I've never I've tried, tried it because I'm afraid
2: it's gonna change the flavor or something, but but people swear by it. We use baking soda in our um when we paraboil potatoes. My husband has an incredible like, fried potato recipe mm-hmm. that he's perfected over several years, um, and we put baking soda in that. But with, honestly, with the rancho gordo beans, they're so fresh and so new that I don't even soak them And I used to soak them. You know, I don't even really need to because they, they cook really quickly. Interesting. The fresher they are, they cook the quicker. That sound also sounds delicious. We've had many moments on this of, like, I need to eat that now. I know. I need to get more of that. I think Meaty is bringing food tonight, but... Oh. need to get more food at these events.
0: Well, Chloe, thank you so much. Now people can subscribe to your newsletter through Forbes. Yes, Forbes Fresh Take. And uh, we just really appreciate your time. Now before we part ways, any um, people or ideas or little nuggets that you think Mm. should be on our listeners' radars as they think about trying to be part of a better food system?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think that actually the main takeaway that I'd love to share is, you know, The book's called Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. But at the end of the day, I do come back to that individual action. And it's all about power. We've been talking about that, right? But um, I actually, you know, in the book, I make some maybe more controversial claims that, you know, at the end of the day, this is all by design. And we've been kind of as consumers beaten over the head with this idea that it's up to us to vote with our dollars. And while that is very well and true... It is also a little bit of a false messiah, too, because what's one dollar from you and me going to do when, at the end of the day, meaty is up against, you know, a JBS that can way better pay for the slotting fees at a grocery store, right, than any of these other startups can. And the power dynamics, I think, of how this industry actually works and how food gets to consumers to begin with is set up to have the power at the grocers and the brands a little bit. Um, but when we can kind of take that kind of guilt that's been pushed on us uh, off our chests, I think, A, that's empowering, but also then B, you then understand a little bit more about, well, my dollar actually does matter, but it's when, you know, it's going direct to e-commerce for that brand when they get way better margins and they're able to actually get way more of that dollar um, Or, you know, the grocers that are better of supporting a brand, like an H-E-B doesn't do slotting fees, right? A Walmart doesn't do a slotting fee. Um, And when you understand the actual kind of structures in place around that, you know, food hubs, CSAs, those are great. Farmer's markets, maybe even less great because in some ways, too, you're just giving yourself a little pat on the back and they're not very financially sustainable for those actual producers there. And so it's really about supporting the actual systems of production that
0: give you power. and educating yourself ourselves on what those systems really, truly look like so that we can make like sounds like the decisions we make need to be a lot more nuanced and there's a lot more to think through.
2: Well, totally. I mean, it's again, just not that didactic. It, there is trade-offs for everything. And also when we understand that, I think we're able to make clearer decisions. Thank you, Chloe. That was great. I'm so glad to finally meet you in person. It was so awesome. And thank you. uh, It's awesome to meet you and just to be in this beautiful store all together. Thank you, Chloe. Thank you.
1: And now it's time for the list. The meat list. The meat and the meatless list. I'll start with the meat list. Force of Nature is the first brand on our list today. So Force of Nature They raise their animals by ranchers. They honor the land and the animals. They pasture them in diverse and thriving ecosystems. So they they do a lot of work with bison. So they have their bison completely out on the pastures. Um, Their focus is regenerative agriculture, building soil, healing ecosystems, working with local communities. Such a great brand. Um, They have bison. They have elk. They have venison. And I really like that they also have these products that aren't just... You know, it's not just the typical ground meat that you would think of. They also have these products that use the offal, Is that how you pronounce it? Offal. So, um, you know, and those are cuts that might not be as typical for Americans to consume, but they have a lot of flavor. They have a lot of nutrient-dense qualities. And um, I really like that they're putting that out there. If we're going to eat the animal, we're going to eat the whole animal. And we're also going to make sure that that animal is raised in a regenerative way. Yes. So great company, force of nature.
0: Great company. And we are doing the list in this way because we wanted to highlight both aspects of this conversation. meat companies that are doing things a better way and starting to, you know, challenge the paradigm and create that whole paradigm sh- paradigm shift. And also the meat alt companies that are obviously just taking meat out of the equation entirely. So both types of companies will show up on the list today cook's venture sought to build a better more sustainable and healthier way to raise poultry the company raises a three-way heritage cross chicken say that three times i don't want to it seems too hard i didn't want to say it once can we switch (laughs) it's bred to grow slower with strong frames and immune systems that are able to digest a diverse feed blend Cook's venture also implements a regenerative ag system called silvopasture, which is defined as the deliberate integration of trees and shrubs into animal production. One other thing that I think is really interesting about this company is that they take the no antibiotics claim very seriously by working with food ID to test every flock for verification. Now, that's so important because when consumers see these types of claims on products, to really know that the company behind them is doing their due diligence to ensure that they're backing that up. Great. That was a tough one. I didn't read anything (laughs) for that. (laughs) It
1: was supernatural. Okay, for our first meatless contribution to the list, Meaty Foods. So we've talked about Meaty Foods before. Meaty was a partner with Chloe in this book, and I think she she talked a little bit about how she originally was going into this book. She wasn't planning on featuring any plant-based meats, but then realized that it it is a part of the conversation. So Meaty Foods, of course, is the brand that is introducing this exciting new generation of animal-free meats that are made almost entirely from mycelium or as they call it mushroom root. So that's an ingredient that provides a significant amounts of fiber, also important micronutrients. The steak and the chicken have this incredible texture that's very similar to meat. The company is a B Corp and the company really strives to fill that space for an environmentally sustainable substitute for meat. Flexitarians, everybody loves it.
0: More magical mycelium.
1: You're really into the alliteration today.
0: Every well, day. <laughs> okay, next up on the list is Farmer Focus. We have the Farmer Focus organic black garlic and ginger boneless skinless chicken thighs. Now this company is extremely committed to staunchly supporting America's farmers. So first and foremost, we love that about their mission. They are committed to the farmers. They continue to impress us with how transparent they are. They have a network of over 70 certified organic family farms that are focused on farmer pay, animal welfare, carbon sequestration, and more. This particular skew, which we really love. How did we even choose? You know yeah, what? Well, we I, don't even need to choose one. We love Farmer I know, Focus. I know. I snuck that on there because
1: like, I really like that one. Yeah. But all of their products are Yeah, delicious. yeah. like,
0: they're all great. But hey, who doesn't love garlic and ginger?
1: Yeah, who doesn't? Am
0: I right?
1: Well, and I love Farmer Focus because all of their products are organic. They really tell that supply chain story. They work with the farmers directly. It's just such a great brand has so much integrity.
0: It's so human. And I think when we go back to that idea of power, giving the power to the small farmers, that's such an important piece of the equation. So yeah, we love them.
1: Agreed. So another chicken brand, I didn't know we were going to be so chicken heavy today. Which is yes you did.
0: You I did, I really forgot. We were leading the curation of this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, fine. I didn't know we were gonna be so chicken heavy. I just forgot. Busted. Pasture Bird. <laughs> Glad you called me out on that. Can't get away with anything. Pasture Bird. So, Pasture Bird, this is a brand that has really it's really looking at the potential for scaling supply chain, scaling regenerative agriculture. And so what they've done is they've created this, they applied modern day technology to their farm. They have this automated range coop, which they call their ARC, which I watched a video of this. It's absolutely incredible. It's solar powered, it's floorless, and it moves these chickens, 6,000 chickens um, to fresh pasture every day. So it kind of just slowly moves and the chickens move along with it and the, the sides of it are all open and the breeze is coming in and they're on this fresh grass and they really um, you know help boost the regenerative properties of the land they encourage the revitalization and they have that evenly distributed feeding so it's just such a cool concept and I also really love the fact that when they got into this they really were trying again like I mentioned before to create something scalable so this is something that they're hoping that other companies can adopt and just create this amazing structure that can, that can then be more accessible to more people products.
0: That feels important here because while we're still highlighting meat companies and companies that exist in that space, we're trying to highlight the ones that can truly shift Mm -hmm. how things are done in this world. So we know that there's always going to be meat consumption. Some people are certainly scaling back or removing meat products entirely. But as long as that industry exists, we need companies like this that are able to scale a more sustainable model. And then we also are seeing more companies like Mosa Meat, that is a global food tech company pioneering what they believe is a cleaner, kinder way of making real real beef. So this is a cultivated meat company recently approved by the FDA like it or loathe it this is going to be out there in the world now and why we chose this company is because they just earned certified their their certified b corp so they're the first cultivated meat company they said to do this and they start by taking sesame seed sized samples of cells They nurture them to naturally grow into beef, and they can make up to 80,000 burgers just from this one sample. So if you know anything about B Corp, you know that there's a 200-point scale, a B impact score that companies have to get, and they got an 84.3. You have to get an 80 to become a certified B Corp. So they're certainly checking a lot of the boxes of a business that's focused on a commitment to governance, community, environment, and its customers, which are the different buckets that B Corp ranks so you know this is kind of completing that puzzle of all the different types of companies that are contributing to a different meat food system
1: I like when I like it when you said (laughs) uh, like it or loathe it because then I was thinking love it or list it and then I realized we did list it it was on our list (laughs) Ah, there you go full circle that's a wrap that's a wrap want to be on The Natural List? Send us an email at thenaturalist at newhope.com.